welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. In the United States, data gathering by members of the public, often called citizen science or community science, is gaining traction in the field of environmental protection. Advancements in technology and the growing technical confidence of the public are gradually transforming how the public engage with and contribute to the work of environmental agencies at the federal, state, and local level. Low-cost sensing devices and real-time data platforms are supporting citizen scientists who now have the ability to establish community air-level monitoring networks, report pollution events, and support environmental agencies in identifying potential regulatory noncompliance. In today's episode of ELI's People, Places, Planet podcast, Jay Benferrato, Chief Innovation Officer at EPA's Office of Research and Development, talks about the recent revolution of citizen science brought about by emerging technologies and what it means for environmental agencies. Jay discusses current innovations with Graham Carvlin, an official at Puget Sound Clean Air Agency, and Megan Smart, an official at the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, or Arizona DEQ. Thank you all very much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to what I think is a topical and what will be a very insightful conversation. Thanks, ELI, for having this opportunity to talk about citizen science. Thanks, ELI, for inviting me to talk with you all today. Yes, thank you, ELI, for having us. It's a great opportunity to speak. So, Jay, if we could, I'd like to get things started with you. Um, in, in your current role at the EPA Office of Research and Development, you've been an advocate for increased use of citizen science at EPA and, and for an active approach and collaborative work with state, tribal, and local environmental agencies. Um, could you please start by giving us some background and context about this developing field of citizen science? Um, maybe a sentence or two that introduces citizen science to our listeners? Sure. Uh, citizen science uh, goes by many names, community science, civic science, but it's a big tent uh, in which uh, the core idea is that non-professionals uh, can be useful in gathering and analyzing scientific data and it's widespread among many fields, but it's gaining a lot of traction as a tool in environmental protection. People may have heard of the Audubon Christmas bird count or local groups that conduct water quality monitoring. And in the environmental arena, uh, community science, citizen science is um, used to assess uh, impairment of water quality in rivers, lakes, and streams, can be used to monitor air quality uh, at a local scale, and can also be valuable to report regulatory non-compliance. So not surprisingly, environmental agencies at different levels of government, federal, EPA, state, tribal, local, are increasingly using citizen science in their work. And I'm particularly excited about a recent assessment by the Environmental Law Institute that was funded by EPA that explored the way that environmental agencies are using this in their programs. And you can find these reports at www.eli.org. Um, and there's three uh, different reports. First, a set of case studies that look at 15 different programs at the state, tribal, local level 
um, everything from air monitoring to water monitoring. There's even some odor issues, monitoring wetlands, uh, et cetera. The second report looks across these case studies and identifies the best practices that state, tribal, local governments are using when they engage citizen scientists in uh, monitoring. And the third report is some recommendations to EPA about how the Environmental Protection Agency can strengthen its support of citizen science at the state, tribal, local level. Thank you, Jay. That context is very helpful. Um, could you also touch on a few activities related to citizen science that are going on at EPA? Yes. Citizen science is not a new idea. EPA, working with states and tribes and local governments, have been engaged for decades in water quality monitoring where local organizations conduct training and set up programs that allow volunteers to engage in water monitoring. Um, today, citizen science touches a range of kinds of environmental work, monitoring harmful algal blooms, monitoring drinking water, beach contamination. It's used by other agencies uh, to monitor invasive species, the primary focus at EPA is water quality monitoring and air monitoring. Um, but some of the newer areas, there's a, a program called SmokeSense uh, that allows people to contribute observations related to wildfire smoke out west. So we see this as a growing area uh, as we adopt new technologies, new kinds of environmental sensors where the public can be much more engaged than they have in the past. Thank you, Jay. So speaking of new technology, uh, low-cost sensing technologies, interconnected data platforms, and not least the ubiquity of smartphones have sort of increased public knowledge and interest in areas of water and air quality. How do you see technology changing the role of the public and their relationship to agency programs? Technology is indeed um, a driver for much of the new citizen science work that is underway and in development. Um, technology does, in fact, change everything. Uh, smartphones allow uh, use of sensors. Connections with the Internet allow broad sharing by large populations. And even some of the data visualization technologies allow the public to actually see how the data look um, in an aggregate sense rather than just the data that they themselves are collecting. They can look at all the citizen science data. So EPA and a number of state agencies are actually working on technology improvements to lower the cost of um, environmental sensing equipment that can be purchased by the public and improve the performance. And over the next five or 10 years, we anticipate uh, even further gains. But even today, the public can purchase fairly low cost measures in hundreds of dollars, um, environmental sensing equipment that can produce data that can be useful in environmental decision making. Some of the lower cost technology is used for more screening level data, 
which might help pinpoint the locations where more expensive monitoring equipment can be deployed. But some of the time, a large number of lower cost uh, data monitoring equipment can be very useful in characterizing overall pollution in urban areas in, in, and in rural settings as well. Thank you very much, Jay, for providing that introduction. Um, I'd like to now turn to Graham and Megan, who are both spearheading innovative programs that engage the public in gathering and sharing data for agency and for public use. Um, Megan, let's start with you. Um, the Arizona Water Watch program began fairly recently. And something that I would say is pretty distinct about it is its ease of use. You're able to use apps that allow anyone to collect and share their observations, quite simply. How have these apps and other uses of technology helped the Arizona DEQ engage individuals? And can you describe a few key outcomes of the program? Sure. So just for a little background, Arizona has over 100,000 stream miles in the state and over 250 lakes. So in 2017, we created Arizona Water Watch to gather high quality data from volunteers and kind of foster a relationship and build with local entities and the public to help us address and prevent pollution in Arizona's beautiful streams. Arizona Water Watch has come a long way in a very short time. So we've trained over 30 citizen science groups and they've logged over 7,500 hours collecting water chemistry data. We've also created and leveraged technology in terms of Survey123 apps that have really helped enable Arizona Water Watch to reach more citizen scientists and create volunteer opportunities other than water quality sampling data. So things like flow regime surveys or wet dry mapping and trash removal near water bodies. So because we're able to leverage those apps, um, Arizona Water Watch has processed over 1600 flow regime surveys. So that data is used to update our GIS maps. And we've done 78 wet dry mapping events and we've removed over 55,000 pounds of trash near streams. Leveraging technology has really helped boost this new citizen science program. Graham, your initiative is also fairly new, and it's one that relies on data gathered by purple air sensors owned by residents within the region of Puget Sound. Could you tell us uh, what was the impetus for developing the Puget Sound sensor map and how this tool has impacted the agency's relationship with local communities? Sure. The sensor map displays particle pollution data from regulatory monitors, as well as those purple air sensors that have been calibrated and have some quality control steps applied to them. The sensors measure the particles in a different way than our regulatory monitors, and so they need to be compared to those monitors through the calibration process in order to get data that are meaningful. They are also subject to failure, like any sensor, and so the quality control steps help us figure out uh, which of those sensors are performing correctly. This map has been very useful for us. Um, we run small studies where we'll blanket an area with these purple air sensors to try and get an idea of how pollution is changing at a very local scale. And that can be helpful for an air agency, for example, if you're trying to determine you know, how representative is the placement of your regulatory monitor within a community. And you can put out 10 purple airs 
and see where those pollution levels are higher. Um, the nice feature about this map is, uh, as you mentioned, it's reading in publicly available data. And so with the relative low cost of these sensors, individuals or community groups can purchase them, uh, put them out, and then that data will be added to the map automatically. And so we have a sensor lending program where we have a couple dozen of these purpler sensors available. And we allow people to apply to get a sensor for a period of time. And they describe you know, what they're interested in, uh, where they're located. And then we start a conversation with them. And that's something that I, I try to keep in my mind you know, when we're talking about sometimes the more technical side of things with, with sensors and smartphones and all this is that at the heart of that is a conversation uh, between people and an exchange of information. And so sometimes we find, you know, sensors are great and they help answer people's questions right away. Uh, but other times there's, there are data or studies or information that already exists and we can help provide that link and connect people to those resources. It has also been very useful during the wildfire season. We had a particularly bad wildfire um, episode that lasted about a week in uh, September 2020. And we had over 100,000 people visit the sensor map during that time. And a number of follow-up calls, having discussions with people, okay, you know, well, what does this mean for my health? What's the forecast for the next couple of days? You know, I've heard about um, these low-cost air purifiers. How do they work? How could I make one? And so we did a lot of outreach during that time, and the sensor map was a key tool in that process. And then even on, you know, sort of uh, internal use, we use it a lot for forecasting because these sensors um, are so frequent, there's about 10 times more sensors than there are regulatory sites in our area. So you get a lot of geographic distribution. And they also um, report data about every minute or two minutes. And so you can also see a lot of temporal change. And so if there is a plume of smoke that's coming into our region, we can see exactly how it's coming in and watch it minute by minute as it starts to advance. And that's been really helpful when we're trying to figure out what's going on and how to communicate that to the public. Thank you, Graham. So it's clear that technology can help people everywhere provide data that has never been available in the past. What are some of the concerns or challenges um, to this revolution of citizen science? In my opinion, data quality is the central issue that anyone learning about citizen science always raises. How can non-professionals produce data that can be useful in decision-making? And I think that um, that question is now being answered through various uh, data quality training protocols, preparation of project plans and data quality plans, um, and state tribes and local governments are definitely finding ways to address, to understand the quality of data and recognizing that all citizen science data is not the same quality. 
There can be screening level data that might be useful for education, uh, community outreach. There might be a quality that is uh, suitable for a scientific study. And then at the high end, there's the quality that's needed for decision making in a regulation or uh, enforcement context. And building on that, um, after data quality, the kinds of issues that come up are data standards, how to share data across organizations, data accessibility, how to actually make citizen science data available to the public and uh, other agencies. So I think there's a set of issues, legitimate issues, that are going to need attention and work is already underway in addressing them. So just like Jay mentioned, um, quality of data has been a concern in general for citizen science. Um, but the trick is technology can really help with the situation. So uh, when we leverage apps, for example, you can kind of require that certain data sets are complete and filled in before volunteers would submit the data. You can also require that volunteers show pre and post calibration of scientific equipment. So all of these are kind of standard protocols for QAQC measurements, the quality control um, that we would use the, the data for to kind of help us analyze uh, chemistry of a stream, for example. Um, another tool that's been really helpful with the use of our Survey123 apps is we can add SOPs and uh, we make little micro video lessons within the app. So if a volunteer can't remember a certain protocol, um, they can simply just click on on the link and then uh, that will help remind them. Another potential concern is um, not everyone who's interested and also available to volunteer is an expert or comfortable using the latest technology. Um, so a workaround or something we can do to help this with volunteers is kind of create visually appealing directions and you know make download parties. So um, if if people aren't feeling comfortable using a smartphone. If we do it together in a group setting, we can really encourage and, and foster the use of technology and show them how beneficial it is. Yeah, I definitely agree with what Jay and Megan have said. I think the first thing people think about is uh, data quality. And as kind of an add-on to that, I think um, data interpretation is really important. So we have, vast amounts of data that have been collected in general and specifically using citizen science. And so how do we take all that data and actually kind of hone it down to answer people's questions? You know, I feel like there's a lot that we do that's abstracted from what people are concerned about. So when I get a call about the air quality, it's usually you know, should I go for a jog later today? Or because I live in this area, is my health impacted? And we have a lot of measurements out there um, and a lot of tools and a lot of knowledge. And so how do we as air agencies bring that all together? How do the citizen and community science scientists um, get access to that, to that information? So I think that's another key piece. Thank you all for sharing some of your concerns as well as some possible solutions. Um, with the rapid uptake of sensor devices and interest in contributing data, where do you all see this leading in three or five years? And I guess in particular, what would state, local, and tribal agencies need to prepare for as citizen science becomes more prominent? 
I think every organization should begin to think strategically about how they're going to deal with this data that's been collected outside the walls of a state, tribal, local, or federal environmental agency. Citizen science uses the collective strength of communities and the public to identify research questions the public is concerned about, collect and analyze data, interpret results, make new discoveries, etc. But it, I think government staff should be thinking about how to integrate community slash citizen science into their programs. So staff at state, tribal, local agencies should think about where there are data gaps or where there uh, is a need for additional data for understanding and addressing an environmental problem. They should think about how the public might benefit from improved data and improved understanding of environmental issue, everything from drinking water to climate change, where when they're engaged in the collection and analysis of data, they can also contribute to solving a problem. And finally, I think uh, agencies can think about networks that they can tap that are already out there who can be engaged in uh, community citizen science. And ultimately, they should be thinking about cost savings and efficiency in environmental monitoring and protection programs and the valuable role that citizen science can play in making those programs cost effective. So I'm going to echo, you know, a lot of what Jay had just said, because I agree with um, really everything he said. Um, technology advances are happening so quickly and mass amounts of data really can inundate any program manager. So I would really encourage um, entities to do two things. One is have a purpose for the data. Really spend a lot of time on that and, and organize that before you would even reach out to volunteers and, and citizen scientists. And the second thing would be to have a plan to ensure that the data is organized and accessible. If data isn't organized and accessible, it's, it's really almost like it never happened. And we owe it to the volunteers who gave their time and energy and effort to collect that data to really make sure that their data lives and, and has a purpose. Those are some great suggestions. Uh, something else that I think is important to keep in mind is the environmental justice uh, lens of community science. And speaking for air quality in those purple air sensors, you know, a couple hundred bucks is relatively low cost, but it's not low cost for a lot of people. And if you look at the distribution of those sensors, they're primarily in higher income areas. And so part of the way that we as a local air agency see our role is to try and increase the equity of the sensor placement. And so we have a number of sensors that we own and we work with the lower income communities to try and get them sited there, work with individuals and community groups in those areas. Um, and also, we try to spread these out to more rural areas, uh, improve our geographic coverage overall. Thank you all. So as we prepare to close out our discussion today, is there a key takeaway message that you'd like to share with our listeners, particularly those who are interested in getting more involved as a citizen or community scientist? I think the big idea 
both for professional staff in government agencies as well as for individuals is to get involved, learn more and learn by experience. For state, tribal, federal agencies, I think peer-to-peer -peer learning is the best approach where there's so much going on um, across these different agencies that learning about those programs, what worked and what didn't work, you can use some of their experiences to then build your own. And for individuals getting involved, uh, you can do um, field-oriented citizen science, you can do citizen science on your computer, and there's huge uh, benefits for families. Um, continuing education for adults as well as for youth to just get engaged in citizen science issues that they care about. So for me, getting involved and learning more is probably the pathway to this new future where there's abundant citizen science data available that is useful in environmental decision making. So key takeaway would would really be to leverage technology. So as a program manager, the only way that we can have these examples of successes of um, volunteers contributing and helping to delist streams in Arizona, um, which means that they would take you know a stream from the naughty list and collect enough data and address issues, and then it gets put on the, the good list. I mean, that is a tangible outcome of what citizen scientists can do. But we have to leverage technology. So program managers and um, regulatory agencies, everyone involved, any entity, can kind of get the data in real time and organize the data efficiently. Um, we, we also have to build off of each other's programs. You know, there's a lot of amazing citizen science programs in the United States. And ELI, you know, has highlighted a lot of them with EPA. And um, the idea to leverage and share our knowledge with one another is really what's gonna help us come together and save the world in a way. So, you know, we always offer this up, but we're happy to share any of our Survey123 coding and our forms, and you can delete Arizona Water Watch in the name and put your title there. And really, we just have to work together. Yeah, I think that's, that's great, Megan. Um, leveraging technology and leveraging uh, knowledge and what people already know and the specialists who are out there who work on these things. You know, you don't have to know necessarily how to recreate a whole air monitoring network or the technical uh, coding or that, you know, how exactly these sensors uh, perform if you can find the resources, the people that know those things and try and and garner some of their knowledge and work with them. So I would recommend people who are interested in community and citizen science to do a little bit of searching as to, you know, that the question that's driving you, what your interest is, and to contact your local environmental agency, state environmental agency, talk to other community groups or individuals who've worked on that problem. Uh, there are a lot of you know, really good examples that have been mentioned of groups that have put a lot of time and effort into these topics. And I think being able to use that knowledge um, is really, you know, there's a lot of advantage to be had there. Um, also talking to academics, if your question 
is more on the technical side in terms of their realm and seeing what information is out there as well. And once you're able to pool all those resources, that should give you a pretty good understanding, hopefully, about what is known, what isn't known, and what techniques might be useful, rather than starting with a piece of technology and trying to backtrack the rest of that knowledge. Thank you once again, Jay, Megan, and Graham for joining us today and sharing your experiences in this field. We'd also like to thank you for your recent contributions to ELI's research reports that highlight innovative citizen science programs and also outline the best practices in this emerging field. Thank you, ELI, for the opportunity to talk about citizen science today, and thanks for those of you tuning in. Closing thought for me is citizen science slash community science can be applied to virtually any environmental issue, and I encourage all of you to learn more uh, via the internet uh, and figure out ways to get involved. It's been a pleasure, ELI. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think citizen science is the the mechanism or the vehicle that we can leverage more, especially with technology, and um, we will all be better off and working together. Thanks for having me on today, ELI. It's been great to chat, and I think we've brought up a lot of really important ideas, and hopefully, given all those uh, budding community scientists out there, some uh, place to start. And thank you to our listeners. You can visit www.eli.org to view these and other research reports, or feel free to contact us at citizenscience at eli.org. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you, so please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.